Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God, our Father, and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Our text today is that portion of the reading you heard a moment ago from St. Matthew's account of the Gospel, these words. Jesus asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they answered, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So far our text, dear friends in our Lord. Location. Location. It means a lot when you're building. Consider, for instance, the Army Institution turned federal prison, the one put out in San Francisco Bay that we affectionately call the Rock. The location of Alcatraz Island made it very valuable property in the 19th century when United States government officials were seeking a strategic placement for a new military fortification. Because of the island's isolation amid the cold and the choppy waters of the bay, Alcatraz was a very difficult place to get into. And the same conditions made it then equally difficult to get out of or escape from. This would become one of its most noted, as you know, one of its most noted attributes when it became a prison in the 1930s. Alcatraz Island, its strength is in its location. Of course, weakness can also be in location. I need only mention that tower in the Italian city of Pisa, and you know what I'm talking about. Structurally, the overall composition of the tower is rather sound, above ground. It was built on marshlands, however, and on a a weak and a shallow foundation. So you see the leaning tower, its weakness is in its location. Location means a lot when you're building. It's then interesting, but certainly not coincidental, that our Lord Jesus chose the location that he did to ask the disciples the question that he did. It's no coincidence at all that, as Matthew notes, it was in Caesarea Philippi that Jesus chose to make plain for all time the foundation, the cornerstone upon which he would build the Christian church. You see, Caesarea Philippi was a region famous or we might say infamous for its deep heritage of pagan worship. Even way back in the days of Joshua and his conquests in the Old Testament, the place then that went by the name Baal, Gad, was a hotbed of idolatry, Baal worship. And temple structures yet remain to the very day that Christ was in Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. As the centuries passed and with Greek and Hellenistic Influence the town and region became known as Panius, or Vanius, so named after the Greek god Pan, the god that was attributed to be the god by the Greeks of herds and of shepherds. And worship of Pan was centered there at the cave, centered there at the cave that lies on, on the face of a high, strong, rocky cliff, centered and central to Caesarea Philippi, and to this very day, You can go there and see the remains, and you can see the remaining niches carved into the the rock face, spaces once dedicated to the god Pan and other 
other nymphs. And beyond all this, King Herod the Great, the Herod of Christ's youth, Herod built at this location a temple to Caesar. Not, not that people might revere him as emperor, but he built there a temple to Caesar so that people might worship him as deity, as God. And so the location of Caesarea Philippi was no accident at all. Interesting to be sure, but no accident at, in, in Christ's measure at all. It was itself standing in stark contrast to the confession of the truth that Peter would declare there. But isn't it always, friends, isn't it always amid falsehoods that the truth must be and needs be confessed? You see, Jesus Christ knew exactly what he was doing, bringing his disciples there to elicit there the confession that he did. As one has put it, Jesus was there standing in an area littered with the temples of the Syrian gods, a place where the Greek gods looked down, a place where the white marbled splendor of the home of Caesar worship dominated the landscape. It's here, here in this location, that Christ chooses to pose the most important question that there is. Who do you say that I am? But notice how Christ posed the question. In two phases, really. First, he asks, who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? Who do others say that I am? And to this question, just like the disciples did, and you heard them do it in the the gospel reading, to this question, one can take a third party, non-committal and neutral position. Some say this of Jesus. Others say this of Jesus. You heard the disciples say it in the text today. Some say this of Jesus. Some say that of Jesus. And one can neutrally toss about all these claims about Jesus of Nazareth and perhaps chuckle at the absurdity in some of them and maybe give a more acknowledging or assenting nod to the others that seem to carry a bit more weight or gravity or credibility. You can do it. You can toss it about neutrally and yet to this question never really come down behind or upon or committed to one or the other. And you know the fact is many people try to live life under this question. Who do men say that Jesus is? Who do other people say that Jesus is? Never make a confession of him themselves. But you know you can't live life under that question. You can't live life under that question because Jesus of Nazareth won't let you. Remember the text? After they're tossing about the world's opinions, others' opinions, then Jesus of Nazareth makes it intimate. And he looked at them and he said, But you, but you, Who do you say that I am? His words corner them. His words corner them so that there is no room for neutrality. And frankly, my friends, his words do the same here today. To you. 
all of us who hear them. My friends, amid the gods of this age and the opinions of the postmodern world, who do you say that Jesus of Nazareth is? Do you consider him to be merely like John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah, just, just another prophet? Many do. Do you consider him only a fine moralist, a Galilean holy man with high ethics who had something to teach us about life and love, but contrary to the claims of Christendom, never really claimed to be the Savior? Because many say this is precisely who Jesus of Nazareth was. Do you consider him a misunderstood man? Indeed, a man misunderstood about his own identity who, when he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am, was really hoping they'd clue him in to who he was and what he was supposed to be about because some people do think this of Jesus. Amid the gods of this age, do you regard him to be like Baal? A God, it was believed, who demands the sacrifices and the works of his subjects as appeasement to wrath? Do you see him standing shoulder to shoulder with the Greek god Pan, one among other gods? Or like Caesar, a god welcoming of other gods but standing just a bit taller than all the rest? Not my words, friends, but his word today has posed to you each of you, the question that cannot be avoided. Who do you say that I am? It's interesting regarding this question. It's interesting that in the Greek, in the Greek language, in the text, it's clear here that Jesus addresses the question not just to one individual, one individual disciple, but he addresses it to all there. Literally in the Greek, who do you, plural? It's clear in the Greek language. Who do you, plural, say that I am? Allowing for and expecting but one answer, he addresses the question to the church in that place. And on behalf of the individuals of the church in that place, Simon answers with the church's one answer. Jesus, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. My friends, from many throats and yet with, with one voice, you too with Peter and all the members of the church throughout the world and, and in heaven, say of Jesus, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Already this morning, you confessed it, did you not? Just a couple minutes ago, in the creed, from the lips of the young and, and old alike, you confessed it. Thou art the Christ. You confessed it in the church's liturgy. From the lips of young and old alike, Thou art the Christ, Son of the Father, Lord God, Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is... Your confession. This is your confession. And therefore, blessed are you, says your God. Blessed are you. It's what he said to Peter, isn't it? 
Blessed are you. You are very blessed because you didn't arrive at this confession on your own. You can't. You didn't arrive here by human efforts. Flesh and blood, Jesus said today to Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You see, the wisdom of flesh and the wisdom of blood, the wisdom of mankind will lead you into other ways and into all other supposed truths about Jesus of Nazareth. But note this very well, friends, that Jesus affirms no other confession of him than the one uttered of him in the text. And he builds on no other Christ. He builds his church on no other Christ than on him who in the text is confessed today, the one who the true church still does confess, Jesus of Nazareth, flesh and son of man, and yet divine son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. The Father in heaven. You know how Paul puts it? He says, no one can confess that Jesus is Lord that he's God, son of the living God. No one can confess that except, he says, by the Holy Spirit, because the Father reveals it by the Holy Spirit. Luther put it this way. Maybe you remember it from from memorizing the catechism in confirmation. He said, I cannot by my own reason or strength, flesh and blood, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me to it, revealed it to me, called me by the gospel and enlightened me with his gifts. With those gifts. It's the way revelation comes. It's the way the confession comes. And you know one of those gifts, baptism. It's where your name was changed. Dear Simon, did you, did you see that? Did you pick that up in the text for today? The name change with the confession. Christ marks the Spirit-enabled confessing Simon, son of Jonah, with a new name. You are Peter, he says to him. Upon the confession, you are Peter. It's a a name characteristic of what by grace this rightly confessing Simon, in the words of the Old Testament reading, was hewn from. His name, he named him Petros, rock, Rock man, he named him Petros because he was hewn from the Petra, the rock of that confession and of the Christ. Your name was changed too. Baptism. Think back even a week ago, if you saw it at the 11 o'clock service, if you were here to witness it, to the font was brought little Mark Howe de Vries, just like you once were brought to the font. Brought to the font. He was, and he came away from those waters, word enriched. He came away with a new name. He's now a Christian. And he's been confessing ever since. For even from the lips of babes and infants does God perfect perfect praise. And ever since your trip to the name-changing waters, you've been confessing too. And so, and so you do, by baptismal grace, you believe the church is one confession, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The, and you, you believe it in your heart, do you not? 
And you confess it with your lips, do you not? And you confess it in your lives, do we not? Don't we? I think we know the answer to that one. And the answer is not always like we should. Not always like we should. Well, we, well, we would confess Him with our mouths so often, we make a different confession with our hands. Doing things that are unfit for Christian hands. And with our feet as we allow them to take us in ways that we should not go. And with our eyes and with our ears, shaky and unsteady. That's what we are. There's no place upon which, there's no location upon which to build a church. Shaky and unsteady is what we've been when it comes to confessing Christ with our lives, like Peter. Like Peter we've been, who even just verses after his great confession from today's text is rebuked harshly by Jesus for having not in mind the things of God, but the things of men when he said, No, Christ, don't go to the cross. Don't talk about dying and crucifixion. And only chapters later we find Peter cornered in the courtyard by a threatening servant girl, denying, denying that he ever even knew Jesus of Nazareth. Peter wavered. He is not the rock. And you and I, we waver and we are not the rock. Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, does not waver. He is the rock. We'll be unfaithful. He's always faithful. We'll stagger. He will be our stay. We'll sink in doubt. And He will bear us up again. We're predictably unpredictable. But that's why with Peter we rest firmly on Him whom we confess, Jesus Christ. For it's the Son of the living God who lived with His hands and feet and eyes and ears and mouth, heart and mind, the perfect life that we're incapable of living. And it's the Son of the living God who unmoved by the daunting task, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, willingly suffered and became the atonement, the atoning sacrifice for what your hands and mine and our feet and eyes and ears and mouth, heart and mind have done and have earned our sins. And it's the Son of the living God who now lives again to confirm that the deed is done. And to the only living God you and I have been reconciled. Dear Christian, and I call you by name, dear Christian, if you want security, don't look to your own steadiness, but look to the rock, dear Christian, from which you were hewn. And where are you certain to find that Christ one, that cross one forgiveness, and the Christ who gives it? It's in the church. It's in the church, but no need to look for Peter and his supposed papal successors to enjoy the unshackling from sins that comes through the keys of heaven. Don't look for Peter, but friends, listen for him. Listen for him and, and for all those who confess of Christ what he did that day, for there in that location, 
Where you hear that confession, where that confession sounds, you'll find the church to whom Christ has given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Word purely preached and taught. Sacraments administered according to the expressed instructions of our Lord Jesus, the Christ. These are the sights and the sounds of the rattling of heaven's keys. One concluding thought with it all today. As I mentioned earlier today in the service, today the church, much of the church commemorates and marks St. Bartholomew, apostle and martyr. No doubt that Bartholomew was there that day, surely as one of the twelve. As an apostle, he would have been there at this historic moment in biblical time at Caesarea Philippi, standing or walking with Jesus and Peter and the others. And what an impact, surely what an impact Christ's rock-solid promise must have had on him when Christ said, not even, my dear ones, not even the gates of hell will prevail against my church and its confession. For you see, as we commemorate the Apostle Bartholomew today, we recall that the tradition has it that he, Bartholomew, after, after the resurrection and, the, and ascension, he, he was called to, to carry the gospel into faraway lands. Indeed, it said he even carried the gospel of Matthew, the very words that you heard today. In the language of the people, he carried them into parts of Persia and Arabia, even into India. But tradition also tells us of Bartholomew that that he was so compelled to confess Christ to the, to the bloody end that evidently he gave himself over to be flayed and skinned alive and then crucified for the conviction that would not be moved underneath his feet. You see, for him, Bartholomew, his strength like yours is in our location. Built on the rock, the church shall stand even when steeples are falling. God grant us such courage in confession, and he will. As with St. Bartholomew, we look to the rock, Jesus Christ, upon which the church shall stand forever and forever. In the name of Jesus the Christ, amen.